Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's Program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Absolutely, it's the case that, that any vaccine dose you can get into an unvaccinated person is better than any dose you can get into an already vaccinated person, right? By deaths, hospitalizations, transmission. It's totally better if you can do that. Thanks for joining us on this Voice of San Diego podcast bonus episode. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor-in-chief at Voice San Diego. This week, we brought back local immunologist Shane Crotty. Crotty leads the Crotty Lab at the La Jolla Institute for Immunology at UC San Diego, where he's also a professor. We first spoke with him on this show in March to answer your most pressing questions about how vaccines actually work, how the new ones that many of us were still waiting for may help in the pandemic. You see, he's part of the leading group of researchers who study exactly what the body does when a virus like the one that causes COVID-19 comes to it. If you haven't heard that one yet, I highly recommend you check out that episode. There's a link for it in the show notes, and it's in this feed from March 22nd, 2021. We wanted to bring him back to give some updates on the state of the pandemic. I had some friends who were vaccinated, who got sick. What's the deal? They didn't go to the hospital. That's kind of key. How are the vaccinations going? How should we be living right now? What would he do? Is he going to go get a booster shot? All of these things and more. And of course, you all sent your own questions in about the Delta variant and other issues. We tried to get into most of them. Let's get to it. Dr. Shane Crotty. Several months ago, we had uh, Professor Shane Crotty from the La Jolla Institute of Immunology on the podcast for a special episode. We had a lot of great response from that, um, a lot of great uh, questions and, and answers and even follow-ups from that. So now uh, the pandemic is still going on and there are a lot more questions and a lot more uh, interest in vaccines and how the bodies uh, and how the human body is reacting to uh, new variants of the coronavirus 
and a lot of other questions. So we've brought Professor Crotty back on. Uh, hello, Pro Professor Crotty. How are you? Good. Good to see you again, Scott. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with everything you just said. It was a really nice response to the last podcast. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into it. Looking back, I highly recommend people go back to the last episode we did with uh, Professor Crotty because we were able to really break down how vaccines work, how the body reacts to uh, scary, invasive contagions. And so I recommend that because it provides a real foundation of how the science works. So we're going to kind of skip over that and jump into, into what's happening now. So I personally, um, Shane, have a couple of friends, two friends. They're real people, and they have they both fully vaccinated, and they both got COVID-19, and they both got kind of sick. Like, not they didn't go to the hospital, but they both got pretty sick. And it, it, um, it made a, a lot of people ask a lot of questions. So uh, they uh, are okay now. It worked out. I think that's kind of the point. Like, they, they got it, but, and they had the vaccine to help them get over it. But would you call what they experienced a breakthrough case? Yes, definitely. Okay. So if you get if you get sick, um, regardless of how severe from uh, COVID nineteen after being vaccinated, that's considered a breakthrough. Yes, and, and I think what's been most confusing to people is that it's counted as a breakthrough case, even if it's just PCR positive and there's no symptoms. That's so like there've been like baseball players who have had breakthrough cases, and all I meant was they had a positive and they didn't necessarily have any symptoms, and then there are other people. Uh, well, including sports players, but, <laughs> but, but also regular folks who have breakthrough infections that, that are symptomatic. The majority of those are in the asymptomatic and posse-symptomatic or cold-like range. Yeah. Or definitely full, more sort of flu-like symptoms. Yeah, I mean, those are definitely happening. Did you think that they would happen as much as they are happening uh, when we started to get the vaccines out and, and have these kind of conversations about how they would work? So I think the initial vaccine clinical trial results were so amazing, you know, like 95% efficacy against any measurable symptoms, mm -hmm. both for Moderna and for Pfizer, that that was really, uh, that was really exceptional. And then the, the real world data, the spring with, with the alpha variant in the U.S. and elsewhere, Vaccinated people did not get sick, did not get infected. It was as close to a perfect vaccine as you could you could hope for. Uh, and then I think between a combination of Delta variant being a lot more transmissible uh, and being somewhat more virulent, uh, and also just more time passing, we're now uh, in a different in a different situation. And I mean, a lot of it is Delta that it is uh, that it is a tougher virus, and so. There are more people, more vaccinated people who are having breakthrough infections. And, and I think the public health messaging has, has been almost all of those breakthrough infections are safe in the sense uh, that uh, those people, it's highly unlikely those people are going to have to go to the hospital. Even if they do go to the hospital, they will be coming back from the hospital. Yeah. From a, a severe illness standpoint, it's absolutely a, a pandemic of the unvaccinated, as has been said, where... Uh, virtually all of the deaths right in the u.s are are in unvaccinated people and the majority of the cases by a long shot are in unvaccinated people 
the place where a lot of people wanted us to get right was to say, all right, if you can turn this virus, if you can turn COVID-19 into a common cold type disease, then, then it's all okay. That is, you know, for example, an employee of mine and or two employees of mine and a child of mine, right, who, who, who all got sick in the past month, but it wasn't COVID, right? They, they all got tested and it wasn't COVID. And all three of them were knocked out for at least a full week, right? And it's just, you know, nameless upper respiratory tract infection, whether it be right. whether it was a coronavirus or an adenovirus um, or RSV, right? There was a lot of respiratory syncytial virus going around. That the, this was just the way uh, life used to be, right? Pre-COVID, yeah. we got sick with stuff, and it wasn't it wasn't great, but we got over it, and there weren't long-term consequences, and, and we moved on. And I think the expectation had been that's that's where we would be with a COVID vaccine and one of the challenges has been certainly workplaces have had to maintain testing right because you've got vaccinated unvaccinated people so like healthcare workers and whatnot so and sports players and another example of people getting tested a lot and so you're you're going to check for tests because you've got vaccinated and unvaccinated people and then you get you get testing you go oh you know i've got coronavirus, you know that it's this particular thing as opposed to something else. Uh, I thought it had been, well, if you've got a really good vaccine and everybody's vaccinated, then you can just move past that, right? Basically not test anymore. And it's just yet another <laughs> nameless illness that you don't have to deal with. Yeah, no. So I, I think there was, there was a, a, an immunologist quoted in the New York Times, and, and you and I talked uh, about before how the problem with coronavirus, with this particular coronavirus, is that it gets into your nose, spends some time there where it can spread to other people, but that where it really becomes a problem for the human body is when it makes its way down into the lungs. And that when it's in the lungs, it causes the pneumonia and the other potentially deadly, if not very serious, um, symptoms. And so what this immunologist in the, in the New York Times said is that what what they kind of have discovered is that the the virus can still get into people's nose even if they're if they're vaccinated, and and at that point they can still spread it. But the vaccine has been doing a really good job of keeping it out of their lungs. Um, is is that how you would describe it, or is there a, a some way that you would um, make that point differently about how uh, how this experience is going for people who have gotten fully vaccinated? Yeah, no, that's a it's it's a good one. Yeah, and I definitely constantly break it down into an infection and a disease of it's a fast infection and disease of the nose and the mouth, actually, and a very slow infection and disease of, of the lungs, where you can you can have people transmitting about four days after they get infected, usually symptomatic at about six days still. Uh, when we talk about hospitalizations, we talk about day 21, right? Hospitalization data. That's a really long time, right? From, from, from day four, when you're talking about every single day that goes by is another day your immune system can, can do some, some really good stuff to, uh, to stop the infection. And yeah, I think one of the related questions or disconnects people have is they say, well, you know, I, I hear these these numbers about, about waning immunity, right? People getting cases now, getting breakthrough infections now, like you're referring to Scott, you know, your friends getting infected, but people at the same time saying, don't worry about it because you're still safe from hospitalizations. Why is there, you know, why is there yeah. a disconnect? Shouldn't those be 
similar. Right. And and no, it's a disconnect for uh, for exactly that that reason. It's it's tough to stop the virus so fast up in up in the nose and mouth within those few days. But there's a ton of time for your immune system to stop the virus from getting to the lung and or even in the lung. And your immune system, the vaccine generates a lot of immune responses that are um, that are better in the lung than they are than they are in the nose. They got more time to get there and whatnot. And so the uh, the data in the U.S. Are, are really consistent with that with that model being the the upper respiratory tract infection being quite different than the than the concerning uh, pneumonia. Where so like the there was a big Kaiser Southern California study that that came out of the preprint, and, and they were seeing evidence of, of waning immunity at, at six months after uh, immunization. Uh, but no change at all in likelihood of hospitalization at six months after immunization. And, and that's how you yeah, can yeah. have that disconnected uh, your immune system to stop the virus in the rest in the nose and mouth. The immune system has to be ready to go instantly, uh, basically to stop it within those first couple of days. Uh, but to stop the virus in the lung. Yeah. It's got like 21 days. It's got a huge amount of time for the immune system that's already been trained, already been taught by the vaccine to get going once you get that infection and, and obviously that infection in your, in your nose, it's, you know, it's not, it's not fun, but it's not uh, super serious either. And so that, that gives the, once you start having those symptoms, that's a sign that the immune system is definitely going by that point, And it's, it's going to be doing a good job in general of, of keeping the virus from getting too well. Right. So there was that CDC study about the vacation town in Massachusetts where a lot of vaccinated people spread the virus. Now, to your point, so very few of them went to the hospital and had, you know, trouble with it. But there was this, there was this kind of like shockwave that like there were vaccinated people who, because it was in their, their throat and lungs or nose, were able to spread it to other people, sometimes vaccinated. And I think it kind of like pierced this myth that people who were vaccinated, who buy into a lot of this stuff, that there was that that the vaccine was some sort of force field, that they thought of it as like a force field, and that if if it, if oh my God, does that mean that that it's not what we thought it would be because it could get into your nose and and spread to other people? Uh, is what kind of perspective could you put on on what is actually happening in that sort of situation, and how likely is a transmission? from vaccinated to vaccinated or vaccinated, especially from vaccinated people to, say, unvaccinated kids? Yeah, all really good question. And I think to take it in, uh, in sort of calendar time, you know, where we were in in April, May, in the between times, <laughs> right? between right. and Delta, right, was that the data were just that these vaccines were amazing at essentially stopping any infections and that there was really no evidence of vaccinated people pretty much ever transmitting. And so it was really simple for places like the CDC to have a recommendation of saying, yeah, you don't, you don't need the mask. You don't, you don't need anything. The vaccines are, are doing it all for you. Um, but Delta uh, came along and Delta is dramatically more transmissible. Right? So it's, it is probably unprecedented in the scientific records, basically of, of a virus going from, changing that transmissibility that much, okay? Mm -hmm. It's not that no virus has ever done it before, but in terms of viruses that, that people have actually studied you know, 
had data on it. hasn't happened before that, uh, that there was that big of a jump in transmissibility. So it's, you know, it's, it's almost like thinking about it as a different virus. It's got that big of a, uh, a difference in how easy it is to transmit to other people uh, for unvaccinated people. One of the things that started being noticed in uh, a couple of places was that people infected with vaccinated people who had breakthrough infections with Delta had similar, uh, what people were calling, similar amounts of virus or similar viral loads to unvaccinated people. Right? And, and so that's a little tricky because that's basically these PCR tests and it's measuring viral RNA, which is a mm -hmm. surrogate for how much virus is around, but not, not perfect. And so those things, plus the, the province town, the, the Barnstable County outbreak triggered this statement by the CDC that vaccinated people could transmit uh, just as much as unvaccinated. That was inaccurate. That was not correct. Uh, what, what they were trying to communicate was that there was a change uh, that you know, last month, uh, it really wasn't happening at all. And then this month at the time, you know, with, with Delta, uh, vaccinated people uh, certainly could, certainly could transmit. What it's shifted to now, as there's actually a lot more data available now, is that if you take a look over a six-month window, let's say after somebody's been vaccinated uh, against Delta, there's probably like an 86% protection against infection that resulted in a meaningful amount of, of virus, more than just, you know, barely became PCR positive for a day or two. But when people have done kinetic studies, basically sampling over a period of days, the vaccinated people have virus for a lot shorter period of time. And so that's also going to just narrow the amount of transmissions you're going to have, right? Because instead of somebody having virus, they could be shedding for a couple of weeks or something. It's, it's probably for a couple of days. So it's at least half as long just to be conservative. So it's kind of like a tautology. Then if you're, if, if you're vaccinated and infected, you're infected in the same potential way as somebody who's infected. <laughs> like, like, it's like, you're going to be able to spread it. It's just that you're probably far less likely to be infected. You're far less likely to be infected, but even when you do get infected, I mean, because of those immune responses, you're actually going to have an infection for a significantly shorter period of time, which is also, that's related to, you know, things like hospitalizations, right? You're far less likely to be hospitalized because you, you, your immune system is actually responding and, and cutting off that infection, which is also going to cut off transmissions. But then the initial additional piece that's come up in the past few weeks, some labs have tried to isolate infectious virus from the nose of people who are vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And they have a harder time getting infectious virus from the nose of vaccinated people compared to unvaccinated. And that's probably because the viral RNA levels don't actually mean the same thing in a vaccinated versus unvaccinated. But also, you probably got virus that's covered with antibody. So, so the vaccinated person is making these antibodies that, that it didn't manage to totally stop the infection, but it's managing to shut down you know, some of the uh, virus. But then if you breathe onto somebody else, you don't only, if, if it's already got antibody bound to the virus, it's still got antibody bound. And so that virus isn't going to be infectious. And so there's it's probably this sort of 86% times like a twofold times another twofold because of the antibody. And so you're probably in the range of, you know, vaccinated people are transmitting 91 to 97% less often, you know, something like 10 to 10 to 20 times less often than an unvaccinated person. 
Uh, yeah. But if you do get full symptomatic, yeah, it's probably just like a twofold to fourfold reduction in the likelihood of transmission. Got it. If you're positive for, for coronavirus and start to have symptoms, you are certainly transmissible even as a vaccinated person for the duration that you have symptoms. That's the, that's the simplest way to think about it. Yeah. And when, when you say things like 86% effective, you're not saying that 14% will get it. You're saying it's 86% more effective than if you had no coverage. That's a difference, right? Right, right. So basically, unvaccinated people are transmitting 10 times to 20 times as often as a vaccinated person. Got it. Yeah. If you got infected, <laughs> it's 90 to 95% likely that, that it was an unvaccinated person who, who sent that virus your way. Okay. So let's translate that to the question that came more than any for this week for you and, and for our conversation, which is I'm vaccinated. My kids are not. They can't get vaccinated yet. How do I handle all of these data points and how do I think of life right now? Because it feels really weird. Yeah, it is really weird. You want to minimize those, those chances of, of transmissions. Um, certainly, certainly it looks to me like there's a lot of data already that, uh, that, that you know, schools that are actually uh, masking and masking consistently are, are, are doing quite well and schools that aren't are, are getting hammered. I mean, even, even locally, um, I know of two high schools, and one's one's been pretty serious about their their policies and, uh, and communication, and the other one hasn't. You know, and even has like a sports coach that was disincentivizing uh, uh, players from from getting vaccinated, and, and even in the first month of school, right? Those two schools have had very different outcomes. I mean. Uh, which, which is, I think, enough to say that masking works really well, right? Even if you can't vaccinate uh, a bunch of the kids, uh, at least in that environment, uh, it works. I, I think rapid tests are really good and helpful. I think, I think it, when you talked about the numbers last time, you're saying it's you know, 10, 15, maybe 20 times less likely to get the virus. If you get the virus, though, and you're vaccinated, and you show symptoms, you, you can very easily pass that to unvaccinated people in your household, but you're also just that much less likely to do that. Yeah, we had a policy here where we stopped having we stopped having in person meetings for a while, right? So our regular meeting would be with like twenty people, uh, and, and for a while I said, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna put the brakes on that again." And now we've seen some more of the data, and things have come along more. And so we said, "No, it's yeah, it." Everybody, that's for everybody involved is vaccinated and, and we have masks and we're like, all right, look, if you're vaccinated and you have a mask, you are not transmitting to other people. Um, I do think it's a, it's a pretty good argument for, for booster immunizations. Um, I haven't generally heard it framed, you know, that, that way. Uh, there's a pretty clear drop in efficacy from about 95% effective, right? It's just preventing cases early on to six months later, or maybe 90%, six months later, being down closer to about 50%, you know, at, at preventing cases. And I think the data for that are pretty solid now, at least, uh, at least for the, the Pfizer vaccine. And so, you know, if you say, well, if you get a booster immunization and it takes that immunity back up to where it was, uh, or even higher, because that third dose is giving people 
higher antibody titers overall and broader, higher quality antibodies against variants, including Delta and probably higher T cells as well, although they haven't been measured. And then probably more durable immunity. The immunity will probably stay higher longer. That, that's what happens with a lot of vaccines after three doses. We don't know for sure, but there are reasons to think that uh, the immune memory generated by these vaccines has been pretty good after two doses, and it's likely to be even better after three doses. And so people would say, well, okay, if you can go from 50% efficacy to 95% or 90% efficacy, you know, yeah, that would be, you know, a good thing to prevent transmissions to kids since you can't vaccinate the kids. I mean, that, that's a pretty reasonable perspective to me. Got it. Do you think we all are going to need a, a booster? Oh, well, that, that word need is the, uh, that's, that's, that's the, that's the, that's the key one in that, that sentence, Scott. And we, and we already just touched on a number of the, aspects related to that. I think that the simplest argument by, by, so there's a wide diversity of opinions on this between science and, and, and public health experts, scientists and public health experts. Uh, the simplest arguments against boosters is, look, the vaccines are doing what they're supposed to do, which is they prevent hospitalizations. They're great vaccines. There's no real, there's no indication in the US, anything but stability there. So just move on. You know, the arguments for boosters follow a couple of different, couple of different lines of thoughts, and they, they relate to this need. Uh, you know, do you, do you need it, or is it helpful? Uh, and I think the the data uh, are certainly that if you if you if you got that third dose, it would likely take that efficacy from, or at least the Pfizer vaccine, from something like fifty percent back up to, yeah. 90, 95%, you know, protective efficacy, more like it was in the, in the between times. Um, and so, you know, if you tell me, all right, you know, I've got this vaccine that prevents flu-like symptoms, right? Flu-like disease. And you can, you can have the 95% version or the 50% version. Like, yeah, I'd like that 95% version. You know, I don't, I don't like getting sick. So if it's, if it's all the same to you, yeah, I'd, I'd like to have that. Um, and another line of the argument has been, I think, uh, more of a better a, a better safe than sorry kind of argument of saying, well, okay, there, there's definitely some waning in, in cases. Clearly vaccinated people you know, can get infected. And so maybe several months down the road, we'd start seeing some waning in, in uh, the protection against hospitalization, right? So why not, why not cut that off and go ahead and be better safe than sorry. It's, it's, it's a reasonable argument based on the knowns and unknowns. And another one is, is uh, it does affect workforces, right? So like healthcare workers right now, I mean, these people, they got vaccinated, right, back in December, January. So they're all six, eight months out um, and they're getting tested regularly at work, right? So if they're positive at work, well, now they can't go to work for a while. So you're you're taking away your workforce in the hospitals that you need, um, and they're not necessarily getting getting any symptoms, right? Or certainly getting much that would keep them away if it was some other illness. But since it is you know, uh, coronavirus, you know they're they're out. And so, don't you then want those people to have uh, maximal immunity so you're not losing those losing those work days? And of course, you know they, they, I've also heard from that they they do have staffing problems just because people 
don't want to work so much because they know those numbers, right? They don't want to put themselves uh, exposed uh, more than they can, more than they can avoid it. So I, I expect boosters to be approved. Uh, I don't, I don't know for sure, but the the clinical trial data certainly looked good that the the boosters are going to work. I mean, they're going to boost up immunity to where it was or higher. Um, and the arguments against boosters is, well, we don't know how long they would last. So, you know, it, it's true that you don't know until you know, um, but we do know that for vaccines like the tetanus vaccine or the hepatitis B vaccine and some other vaccines, that they're pretty frequently a three-dose regimen. You get three doses, and after the second dose, you actually don't have antibodies and immune memory for very long. It doesn't look that great. But then after that third dose, then people have antibodies that last 10 to 30 years. That's kind of baked in to how the immune system usually functions, that there's a, that your immune system does a cost-benefit analysis of, of each infection that you get. So if you get infected with something once, you know, if it's not life-threatening, your immune system decides to commit some energy to remembering it, but not a lot of energy because it, it takes a lot of calories. If you're going to try and remember something for 50 years, you got to keep burning calories on it for 50 years. You know, is it, is it really worth that or not? So if you get infected a second time, your immune system is like, oh, okay, this thing, this thing came around again. I should commit a little more. If you get infected a third time or vaccinated, right, your immune system can't tell the difference between an infection and a vaccination. If it comes around a third time, you're like, well, okay. <laughs> that wasn't working, right? <laughs> um, really need to um, up the immunity here and, and probably remember this thing for a long time because this, this virus keeps coming around. And so yeah. there is some risk-benefit to that. And the, the final ones are really uh, the side effects, the reactogenicity, you know, is, it, is a third dose okay? And all the data on that so far look really good, uh, actually, that it's basically the same as a second dose, not not a walk in the park, you know, but uh, but tolerable. And then the last one, which has certainly been a big argument people have made and is a reasonable one to discuss is the global equity question. Of, right. um, how can you give a third dose to people in the US when most of the world hasn't gotten uh, a first dose? And, and I think that's a fair thing to discuss. Um, for me, practically speaking, uh, it's a it's a false dichotomy. It's not it's not a real issue actually. Uh, it's I think the United States has to keep enough vaccine doses to vaccinate all the unvaccinated people in the U.S. And absolutely, it's the case that that any vaccine dose you can get into an unvaccinated person is better than any dose you can get into an already vaccinated person. Right by deaths, hospitalizations, transmission, um, it's totally better if you can do that. Uh, but if you can't. Right. So, I mean, the U.S. has to keep all those vaccine doses in the hope that, that, that we can manage to keep convincing unvaccinated people to get vaccinated. But if you can't, I mean, we've got millions of doses of vaccine expiring every week or month right now because you can't convince those unvaccinated people to get vaccinated. You know, why not allow people to, to get them who actually want them? There, there's not, uh, you have to keep them around. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and, and, you know, I think that brings up another question that came up a lot is, is there's the global equity concerns, but there's also kids who haven't gotten the vaccine yet. And I think a lot of people are wondering what's taking that so long. Can you help people understand what is different about kids that needs to be dealt with to, to allow that to go forward? Yeah, sure. That's, that's a, that's a really good one. So 
uh, kids and vaccines come in, in, in tiers, actually, right? So, and, and it's literally the tiers that, that are going on right now. So there's sort of the, the, the 16 to 18 year olds or the 15 to 18 year olds and then the, the 12 to 15 year olds. Then you've got nine to 12 year olds, six to nine year olds. Each of those get considered different categories to a degree. And you, you basically have to do one, you have to test the vaccine in, in older before you can go to younger. And normally you would have to prove that the vaccine has efficacy, actually protects against disease in each of those age groups before you would be allowed to go to the next youngest age group and that it was safe. Uh, for COVID-19, there's been a general agreement that, okay, if you can show that the immune responses look at least as good in the kids compared to adults, given how clear cut the vaccine protection has been in the adults, um, that's convincing that it's, that it's protective in the kids. And so it just, then is it safe in the kids? And one of the things about vaccines is that, you know, they, they do have to make a guess about what's the right dose for a kid compared to an adult. And then what's the right dose for each of those age groups. Um, if, if the dose is too high, you might have just more side effects, right? And if the dose is too low, you might not get enough of, of an antibody response. Um, and so they've been, they've, they've made their guesses and they're, they're going through those clinical trials. Um, and for the 12 to 15 year olds, and certainly the 16 to 18 year olds, the antibody responses look great. Um, the safety data looked fine. Then the, there were, uh, in the midst of that, there were the reports of myocarditis, right, in some, uh, in some individuals, almost all boys. So I think essentially in light of that, they said, okay, we need safety data for a longer period of time before we're going to approve any of the younger age groups now. Um, and, and that's because that was the first notable safety signature that had been seen and it was seen in, in younger individuals not older individuals right and the cost benefit analysis isn't as dramatic for right for for kids as for for adults right kids can certainly end up in the hospital and it certainly can be a nasty disease uh, but it's less likely in the kids and so you, you have to have uh, from an fda and then a cdc perspective uh, uh, clear numbers about that, that cost-benefit analysis now. And so they, there were hopes of having a first chance of, of having approval for like six to 12-year-olds, right, by, uh, by summertime. Yeah. They pushed yeah. it off for that to basically uh, say, uh, I think essentially they had to have six months instead of two months of follow-up data on safety, they had to have six. Uh, so when you, when you describe that cost-benefit, what you're talking about is like, the the potential risk of whatever they may have discovered as far as safety of the vaccine you have to you have to show that actually no it's far more it's even with that risk far better for public health and for these kids than um than that risk is that what you're saying and that's what they need to be able to establish and they're saying they need more time to do that yeah a lot of things i, I wanted to address is is this question of um vaccine hesitancy. There's some things out there I think we could at, at least grapple with. One of them that comes up a lot is is this question of like, well, I think I've had COVID already. Isn't that enough? Can't, can't that establish me? You know, maybe I was even really ill. 
I, my body's probably prepared in a different way. Can't that be enough? And what, what would you say to those folks? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a great one. And there are, uh, yeah, I think there are a couple of, of really clear answers for it. So one is if you didn't actually get tested for COVID, right, if you didn't have a positive PCR test and a positive antibody test, frankly, uh, you absolutely should get vaccinated. The, there's so many people I know who are like, oh, yeah, I got sick. I'm sure it was COVID. It was not COVID. Uh, it, mm -hmm. was, it was another thing. You know, there are all kinds of viruses in this world. Uh, and, we, I mean, we had a sad case in San Diego, right, last month of a cop that died because um, he was sure he'd had COVID and he just had uh, he didn't actually have a test or anything and he didn't get vaccinated. And that's certainly one whole category of people we really want to convince to get vaccinated. Whereas other people who have um, had confirmed cases, it's still actually really great to get vaccinated. Um, those people have the best immunity of anybody um, once they get vaccinated. So uh, a person who's previously had COVID who then gets vaccinated now has 10 to 100 times better antibodies uh, than they did before they got vaccinated. Uh, I mean, that's an incredible improvement in their immunity. And uh, I've been calling hybrid immunity because you've got both the, the infection-generated immunity and the vaccine-generated immunity. And, and, and what's been most incredible about it has been those people who have antibodies, they recognize every variant. Uh, whereas your, your regular vaccine, like me, like I got, I got vaccinated twice. Uh, my antibodies, there's some variants that my antibodies don't recognize very well. Uh, but if you previously had COVID and then you got one shot of one of these RNA vaccines, your antibodies recognize all the variants and they recognize them amazingly well. And they recognize even distant coronaviruses. And probably um, that immunity is also going to last a really long time, even after just a, a single shot. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas we measured immune responses in people who had previously been infected uh, and looked at their memory and you know, looked at what their protection like we looked at, looked like, and one of the things we saw was that there was like a hundredfold range from person to person. And they're like, look, it's kind of like if there was a basketball game and one person scored one point and the other person scored a hundred points, you know, you would not consider those equal outcomes, you know, and you right. can't tell which person you are. Are you the person who had one point or the person right. who had one point? Whereas if you get vaccinated, that levels everything out because the vaccine's then really, really consistent. So those are, those are really the main, and it's totally safe. Yeah, what's there to risk? Yeah, there are a lot. There's lots of misinformation out there saying that uh, the vaccine's not safe and people who previously had COVID. That's that's not true. Um, and there's a lot of data on that point, but there's actually data from the uh, clinical trials. They actually did not exclude people in the clinical trials who had uh, who were antibody positive. And so there's actually uh, hundreds of people who were in those tests, and they had. The, their side effects were actually quite similar to the unvaccinated people. It's just that their their first dose was similar to most people's second dose in terms of the side effects. <laughs> they, got, uh, they, they got it up front. <laughs> uh, so there's a whole family of hesitation around families, around fertility, uh, around pregnant women. Um, do you have any idea where that came from and, and what, what you would tell people about how the immune system interacts with, with the fertility systems and, and, and why that might not be a concern? 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you where it came from. It's 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 just straight up fear mongering. Literally, it was anti vaxxers saying, "Well, what's the scariest stuff we could say about the vaccines that would get attention?" And the top one was was pregnancy, uh, and it's yeah, it's just all been uh, straight up fear mongering lies. The data on the vaccines in, in pregnant women have been. Uh, very impressive that the, these vaccines are totally safe in pregnant women. Uh, there were women who got uh, pregnant before, during, and after the clinical trials, and they were all totally fine. There's a, yeah, there are great data sets uh, that have been collected uh, showing that, which is why the FDA took the really unusual stance of saying it was fine for pregnant women uh, to get vaccinated. Uh, and that was because the clinical trials were so huge, they were so large, they actually ended up including women who inadvertently got pregnant during the clinical trial. And there was enough data there to say, yeah, this is, these are safe. Um, and on the male side, yeah, it, it's again, just fear mongering. It's like, well, what scares men? Uh, infertility. <laughs> and so we're just going to say stuff about that. It's totally not true. There's nothing about your immune system that, that, you know, boosted to, to address this virus interacts with the fertility and, and semen and everything like that. It's just, it's just made up. One of the things I said the other day on the radio, and I don't know if, if I feel comfortable about this, I'm going on again tomorrow, so I'll, I'll address it after what you say. But I, it was, we were kind of going along this conversation about people still getting sick, the, va the Delta variant was just ripping through the population. And I, I said something to the effect of like, I think it seems like everybody's going to interact with coronavirus. Everybody's, the coronavirus is going to come into people's nose everywhere. Everybody's going to have that experience. It's just how well their body's going to react to it. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I said, uh, Usually my stuff on Twitter is, is, is a little more subtle, uh, but I think it was June, uh, I tweeted out, look, at this point, you're either vaccinated or you're going to catch Delta variant. You know, it's, it's going to be the most likely thing you'll ever have in your life in terms of an infection to put you in the hospital. And, and I said that because the, the data from the UK were, were so clear at that point that it was just so infectious that, um, you're definitely going to be coming in contact with people who are going to end up having it. And then it's a question of, are you protected against it uh, or, or not? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a fair statement. What is the difference scientifically with the Delta variant that made it so powerful and so transmissible? I mean, we know it was more transmissible. We know it's, it's caused more problems. What, what literally changed about the virus that made that happen? Yeah, so this is actually one of our uh, biggest knowledge gaps still. Uh, and actually, I did my PhD in RNA virus genetics, and, and this uh, coronavirus is an RNA virus. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm familiar with the, the topic and the things going on. And one of the things about Delta is that that's, that's worth remembering is that uh, it's not the variant that anybody was really betting on to become the, the next, the next big problem, just from looking at the sequence of the virus, you know, it was, there were three variants right in India. And, and this was the one that looked least concerning. And so that, that tells you that, that 
uh, we don't know enough about the virology still to take a look and, and really know what's uh, what's going on with it. And in those experiments, that that knowledge gap still exists. We don't actually know why this virus is is more transmissible. The the simple answer is that it, it may be just two mutations, and so. One is actually the mutation that the California variant had um, in, in the spike that, that made it a little bit antibody resistant, but mostly just sort of a better receptor, probably improved transmissibility. And then the second mutation essentially affects how much of the spike gets expressed and sort of how spring-loaded the spike is. Uh, and uh, it's just the first variant to show up with exactly that mutation. And, and if it turns out it's really those two, uh, then, then it may be that the, the virus is fairly maxed out in terms of transmissibility now. Uh, but it has a whole bunch of other mutations in it as well that we don't really understand. And so, uh, there, yeah, there, there's definitely still a lot more to learn about the virus itself to get a better handle on yeah, whether this virus still has still has tricks. Uh, it hasn't shown much ability to evade vaccine immunity, any, any variant. Uh, they've, all, uh, they've all really still been handled pretty well by antibodies. And then after a, a booster immunization, it'll be even more so because, again, like I said, the boosters rec recognize diverse variants even, even better. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side, I've got some rapid-fire questions for Shane. It's going to be good. Stay with us. Join culture creator Remel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on Season 2 of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's Program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. You have kids, right? Two. Yeah. Uh, uh, they're vaccinated, though. Yeah. Okay. So let's pretend they're a couple years younger. They they're not vaccinated. Yeah. All right. Are you comfortable going uh, on an overseas trip? I'm trying to think of a country that would be. I'm comfortable going overseas to Hawaii because we did it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good. Um, concerts indoors. No, but we're not really concert people. <laughs> okay. Okay. Okay uh ballpark or stadium outdoors full no if we had la galaxy or lafc tickets right now i would probably still well if the kid really wanted to go and we wore masks i'd be totally fine with it 
Okay, masks makes a difference for you there. Yeah, masks definitely make a difference for me there. And it's like the most outdoor stuff, I'm, I'm fine with no mask, but but close outdoor, I mean, Delta is definitely transmissible enough that it is transmitting some outdoor. And so like there have been outdoor concerts that have yeah. But I mean, masks, they really work. So yeah. All right, lastly, are you going to get a booster? That's a good question. There's still some things I want to see before I would need I feel a need for, for a booster. But for people 65 and older, right, I'm definitely, I'm all in on boosters as soon as they're available. I haven't felt, you know, I feel like they're likely to be approved in the next month. And, and I think they're, they're a wise decision for, for people in that age group. Uh, I think it makes a ton of sense too for healthcare workers, as we were talking about before. So depending on your particular situation in business, you know, uh, what would hold you back? The question of whether you want to have another day of, of fever? <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of not getting sick. Uh, but, the, but there's some hints of, uh, of Moderna and Pfizer being different in this regard. Yeah. And I just happened to get Moderna. And the, the phase three clinical trial data there were that Moderna wasn't really showing the same waning that Pfizer was. And so uh, I'm kind of looking for a little more data as to whether the need's equivalent in, in, in both of those. Uh, if, if I had gotten Pfizer, yeah, I, uh, I would get it when it became uh, available. But going back to your thing about the kids, you know, if, if it became available and vaccines became available for kids, but it looked like doses were limited, right? I'd be like, nope, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm definitely going to hold off until there are plenty of doses for the kids. Because as I said, any dose you can get into an unvaccinated person is absolutely right more valuable than to than getting a dose into a vaccinated person. So there's no way I would want to slow down getting the doses into unvaccinated Americans. Good question. Right. Thanks for listening to this Voice of San Diego podcast bonus episode. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. We will be back this Friday, as usual, with the weekly roundup of news and stories you should care about. Keep up with all of our public health news and our team's takes on local stories with The Morning Report, our most popular newsletter. Get it at voiceofsandiego.org. That's vosd.org slash newsletters. vosd.org slash newsletters. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego. This show was produced expertly by Nate John. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.